congratulations. You did it. You finally did it. You've recorded your very first podcast episode. But what now? How does one actually get their podcast out there on the internet? Well, you take your podcast to Blueberry. That's Blueberry without the E's. Blueberry is a platform created specifically for hosting your podcast and integrating it with your very own hosting and streaming blog. With Blueberry, you get a platform optimized for iTunes pod, and podcasting with unlimited downloads and you can cancel at any time. Blueberry hosting is also highly optimized for using WordPress. Publishing your podcast is a simple three-step system. Think of the process like a recipe. Produce your podcast, write your own blog post, publish, repeat. It is so easy for people who are not technologically savvy like myself, and even better for those who are. Blueberry has several storage plans starting out at $12 a month, and if you sign up using the promotional code RELIC, your first month is free. That code again is RELIC, just like the podcast you're listening to right now. So what are you waiting for? Get creative and get your podcast out there. Hi, everybody. This is Relic, the Lost Treasure podcast, back for one of our It Belongs in a Museum style episodes. Uh, for those of you who are turning in, t- turning? Tuning in for the first time, get it together. This episode is going to be a little bit different than what I would like to call Vanilla Relic, which are the narrative episodes that focus on one lost treasure at a time. Um, This is mostly because I've written 12 episodes in a row and I need a break. So these are more like roundtable style talks. And since we're kind of in the middle of a mid-season chill, you can expect a few of these going into next month. Anyway, so usually I invite someone from another podcast to guest host, but um, this time I'm inviting someone who I have actually tried three times to start a podcast with, and that person is Jake Selly, our in-house anthropologist, as I like to call him. Hello, listeners. Thank you. Uh, But Jake is actually really cool because, well, for many reasons, but uh, mostly because he's actually worked for the Natural History Museum in New York. So uh, you want to tell us a little bit about that? Uh, Yes, I was an intern for a little while. Uh, Ooh, that's a good NPR voice. Thank you. Um, But yeah, it was basically just a uh, museum internship for the summer. It was very rewarding. I really enjoyed it. Uh, I was featured in a lot of newspapers uh, in the city on my tour that I did. So yeah, it was great. <laughs> Is this your character for the podcast? It's not a character. It's totally a character. Stop. Um, so <laughs> I hate you. So Jake and I have tried to do a um, Doctor Who podcast before, um, as well as like a general geeky culture podcast. And most recently, before I realized that these types of podcasts are very frequent, we tried to do a supernatural uh, and or mystery podcast that we had called uh, Jake and Max's Paranormal House Party. 
What was our theme song again? It was um it was a remix oh. of Adore Delano saying party, but over like creepy music box. Party, party, party. Yes, party. we will we will post it. Um I'm actually gonna put up uh, an extended excerpt of that online if I get drunk at the end of the week, which is probably something that's going to happen. Um, but I will play an excerpt right now so you can judge the uh, type of quality we we achieved in that. So uh, here's us talking about Bigfoot. Party. second but i gotta give you a little background on sasquatch if you don't know about it i know you know about it max this character needs to stop right now (laughs) this isn't a character oh oh shoot that's just how you talk i never noticed that before this is really awkward i'm really sorry i'm just trying to be me oh and you don't want me to be me well i i'd like you to be better at what you're doing as you stir your coffee spoon (laughs) oh you're gonna, everyone just turned off the podcast. That's great. I just skip this button is a good creamer reason. you have, by the way. I like it. It's Duncan. Oh my gosh. Oh my gosh. I wonder if they'll sponsor this. They won't. Oh. Okay, so we have a little background. So Sasquatch or Bigfoot as he or she. This is true. We're not. She, because I'm a feminist, is more commonly referred to. Uh, is described mainly as a large bipedal humanoid with a large amount of hair all over their body. A human now, what? A humanoid. Humanoid. Um, humanoid with a large amount of hair all over their bodies. Mm. Usually when I think of Bigfoot, I think of it as brown, but apparently there are some places that think that it's um, red. So oh. It's a ginge that is not a soul. Okay. Oh, wow. So you're a feminist, but not so much a humanist. Gingers are going to be extinct in like 20 years. It's fine. Like, they don't care. Love you, gingers. They're all really hot. Um, so experts have gone back and forth. Uh, experts have gone back and forth on whether or not it's usually more of uh, ape-like or if it's more human-like, so if it's a bit more like primal-looking or a bit more just like a really hairy dude. So <laughs> He's Italian. Either way, it's portrayed usually as a adorable little primate creature that enjoys frolicking through the forest and only coming out during grainy photography days. <laughs> like days when you get those like iPhone photos, like he's just like, girl, I gotta stay in. Selfie. But like when you're bringing out like your dusty old like 60s video camera that you got to wind it up. Wow, that was great, Max. <laughs> I know, right? We were amazing. Um, so if that clues you into our subject matter today, we're going to be looking into mysterious primates, but ones that are most definitely human. Or are they? Specifically, we're going to be examining the fossilized or mummified remains of ancient man that we've misplaced throughout the years. Um, so to put this into context, there are preserved remains such as the Iceman and what are called the bog bodies, but Jake can tell you probably a little bit more about that, um, and mummified ancients in general. So like, how do we kind of come, uh, what are these things, Dish? Well, first I think it's important to differentiate, or at least define fossilized and mummified. Uh, fossilized is more like how the dinosaurs got there, just kind of... When an animal dies and it just lies there and then eventually gets taken up by the ground, it'll eventually become a fossil. Um, Not always, but sometimes if the system's right. And then... um, If the mood strikes. Exactly, if the mood strikes. It has to be in the mood to want to turn into a fossil. I hope my bones, when I die, want to be a fossil. Girl, you're already there. Oh, thank you. Let's appreciate that. And then mummification is more representation of an actual burial performed by a group of people. Can you talk about, like, the gross stuff they do to mummies? 
the, the, the nose scooping. Yeah, I've I've always really wondered how that worked. Like that was one of the big things when I was like learning about Egypt and mummification. It just didn't make sense to me how you could pull out my stomach through my nose and or like how <laughs> that's not even in there. But no, they, no, they took everything out by the nose. Wait, really? At least for, I, I could be wrong, but from what I understand, it's that mummy, like, they believe that if you, like, you cut into the body, it would have an, like, have an issue going to the afterlife. They'd be like, no, girl, you, you, you aren't getting in. Um, so what they did was they did it all throughout the nose because then it, like, was basically non-invasive. Oh, okay. Um... So remember what the question was again? <laughs> that was, I mean, I was just kind of talking about like mummies and fossils and sort of like, um, I guess my question would be like, how, how do we like rediscover them where, so, you know, a thousand years passes, like things decompose, things are lost. And yet we come across these, um, these subjects, I guess, or specimens for lack of a better word. Um, and I mean, some of them, I mean, the environment makes sense, but when we, what is like the perfect condition to find a preserved human from like tens of thousands of years? Well, maybe that's much. I mean, you're the anthropologist here. You answer the question. Well, um, <laughs> microphone yes. management. Um, this is a perfect distance. It's fine. Here, I'm gonna tilt your head just like this. There you well, go. Perfect. Micromanaging. Micromanaging um, the microphone. Yeah. So in terms of fossils, you, you mostly find them in Africa because just the conditions are right for that. But mostly because it's the type of um soil that uh early man was found or at least grew up in quote unquote is uh just a very good preserver of fossils um in terms of mummification usually if it's been moved it's most likely because someone stole it as i'm sure most of your podcast is about but yeah usually it's either been moved or for whatever reason it's just found its way there awesome so uh i guess then we can get into the nitty-gritty of it uh so yeah we've got i guess our main mystery that you're going to tell us about uh it's a mystery of the peking man is that like peking duck can you tell us to give us the give us the rundown give us your report no all right the year 1921 well it's Beijing, China, but in my notes, I accidentally wrote Beijing, China. <laughs> so I don't know. Maybe it was Beijing, China. Uh, we open on two scientists. The first, a Swedish geologist, Johan Gunnar Andersen, aged 47. And the second, an American paleontologist named Walter W. Granger, aged 49. Both were heavily involved in the excavation of a variety of fossils in China throughout their lives. Uh... Anderson was entirely based in China while uh, Granger had been traveling pretty much across the world doing uh, paleontological work. Hard word. Uh, So currently they were both working for the American Museum of Natural History, uh, as I did. Uh Yeah, exactly. On its third expedition of China and Mongolia, uh, they were investigating the potential of the, and I apologize because I know I'm going to mispronounce it, Zhao Kundin cave system for plent uh, for plentiful excavation sites. Basically, they were going around looking for s- sites that might reveal some sort of geological or paleontological uh, data that they could use. Uh, they were directed by a local quarryman, and they made their way to Dragon Bone Hill, which I have to assume previously held dragon bones, or else that it's been named incorrectly. 
And I, I, I find that offensive. Um, Anderson first noticed this might be a sweet spot uh, for excavation by examining the quartz found at the site. And he determined that they were not local to the area. Because, like, you know, their, like, chakras weren't aligned properly. Like, and, like, you know when you just found the right crystal? And, like, you just got to make it, like, work. What? Uh, it's, a, it's, like, a crystal joke. Um, what? It's a crystal magic joke. Okay, Jill Stein. Topical. Yeah, topical. Immediately, the expedition got to digging. Unfortunately, uh, it would be another five years before anything was found in the soil. Uh, Because unfortunately, most fossil work is just this. You hear about about a discovery on the news about some new fossil, uh, and you don't really realize that they've been searching that site for nearly 10 years, and they didn't find anything until this thing. Um... So, in 1926, on the occasion of a visit by the Swedish prince to Beijing, which seemed like an important enough uh, fact for Wikipedia to mention, so I felt like it was enough for me to mention, uh, Anderson announced that two human teeth had been found, later known as some of the first findings of the Peking Man. Uh, Now enters a man named Davidson Black, a Canadian anatomist of Peking Union Medical College. Peking? uh, Peking. Well, I, I don't know. It's 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 the same Peking, though, as the Peking man. Uh, so he was very ecstatic, just beside himself with scientific joy about this finding. He got money from the Rockefeller Foundation and re- uh, recommenced excavations at the site uh, in 1927 using both Western and Chinese scientists, which is always good. Uh, it's actually been an issue for decades in um, the scientist- scientific community of getting, like, uh, I guess, native scientists, because uh, especially on paleontological and geological work, because most uh, most of the time they just believe in using Western scientists. So eventually a tooth was found, which Blake uh, was so excited about that he placed in a gold locket on his watch chain, which is just so romantic, you have to admit. He attempted to publish his theory uh, that he had discovered a new species and genus of man, which he named Synthropus uh, pecanesis. But many fellow scientists were skeptical given that he only had a tooth to go off of, which at is not really that far off about what some of the classifications for hominid species, uh, some of it is just like very small skull fragments, which is very interesting. Um, but back then they didn't uh, believe it was valid enough, uh, so it was kind of not really, not really accepted in the community. Uh, but then in 1928, Blake or Black found a lower jaw, several more teeth, and a skull and skull fragments at the site. Uh, after this discovery, the area became even more even became more of a hotbed for paleontological activity, resulting in the discovery of over 200 human fossil um, bits Whoa. from more than 40 individual specimens, so 40 different people, including six nearly complete skull caps, which are very important in the dating of hominid fossils, since uh, the real development that you're charting when going like back across the hominid lineage is on brain size and the way that the skull is kind of mm-hmm. growing and fusing differently than you see in other species. So wait, it wasn't just like peaking man. It was like peaking m- men and women peaking people. Yeah. I think that's just the, it, when they say man, it's the colloquial term for like all, like the people of that area, like the, the, oh. the Danish man, even though I never heard anyone use that. The Danish girl. Exactly. The Danish girl. Um, so the name Synthropus pecanensis uh, didn't last long, though. Uh, about 30 years ago on the island of Java, there were very similar hominid fossils found by a man named Eugene Dubois. <laughs> Sorry. I don't know. I was like, my French. Keep going. Uh, okay. Do a live. Wow. 
Before this, uh, this person's a Java were considered to be a deformed ape and not the early ancestor of man, which was a lot of what early fossils were believed to be. Uh, the first Neanderthal, um, I believe, full skeleton. Maybe it was just the skull, but it was based. It was thought to be like a deformed person that was just like grotesque. Whoa! Oh, grotesque. Yes. Um, <laughs> okay. So yeah. So previously, the uh, what was known as the Java man. Uh, he, did, he was a big fan of coffee. Um, was considered to be a disformed ape, but once the uh, Peking man showed up, um, they kind of were helping to confirm the other one's existence. Uh, so Peking man and Java man, the world's greatest crime-fighting duo, were lumped, back, <laughs> were lumped together in the designation Homo erectus. Mm-hmm. So some quick facts about Homo erectus. Uh, it's the second species back from us. Um, well, I guess not really back from us directly, but... Okay, so wait a second. So if we're, if we're Charizard, they would be Charmeleon. Or would be Charmander. So if we're Charizard? Yeah. Yes. But, like, not really, because, like, we don't, we didn't actually, like, evolve from Neanderthals. They're entirely separate species. Okay. But I don't know. Um... So yes, so the species originated in Africa and was the first spe- uh, species of hominin to migrate out of Africa and spread across the world. Uh, they got as far as basically lower Europe and um, I think obviously into China and into some of the islands off the coast of China. So, and they were also big tool users and as well as creating fire and possibly cooking. Oh, so people well, continued. Yes, exactly. So the people continued to dig at the site until around 1937, and then the start of the Japanese invasion began. Uh, and unfortunately, that's pretty much where our story ends. Uh, these fossils were attempt were, I believe, trying to be get taken out of uh, China so that we can or Beijing so that they would be safe. Um, but some theories have been put that they never were found again. So some of the theories are that. Uh, they were taken by the Japanese, and they're still hidden somewhere in Japan or somewhere in China that only the Japanese know where they are. Um, basically, the Japanese would have taken them. Uh, another theory is that somehow they got aboard an American ship, uh, which were going off to America to drop off the fossils so they could be kept there until things calmed down in China, but then was sunk, so it could be at the bottom of the ocean. By like a sub or a bomb. Yeah, something. Or aliens. <laughs> Um, and there's even a chance that the bones were taken and ground up in traditional Chinese medicine. So, so they just somehow got into some old woman shop and she was just like, oh, these are some good bones. I'm going to make some good aphrodisiacs. I was going to say it's going to be boner juice. Exactly. Bone juice. Oh. Uh, so yeah, it's still a mystery. But there are four teeth still at the Paleontological Museum of Uppsala University. Um, so we still have some evidence from them. Wait, that's in Sweden, right? Uppsala. Uppsala? Is it Sweden? I believe so. Okay. Okay, wow. So, um, it could theoretically still be out there, possibly in Japan, but wouldn't the Japanese have, like, copped to that by now, you think? It could be that, like, the command structure in, um, the army at that time, the people that knew about it, it didn't get high enough to anybody that survived the war, possibly. You know, that's, like, there's a theory that a lot of gold in the Philippines uh, suffered a similar fate where uh, it was hidden and then just never discovered because someone, um, you know, bit the bullet. Like, I know that's kind of part of the tale of Yamashita's gold, which we will maybe get into in another episode. Um, But, uh, wow. So 
what are the chances that we would ever and also wait a second i was gonna say what are the chances of finding it but also we you said that there were other fossils were any of those ever uncovered what do you mean were there other you said like there were peaking men plural like other fossils or people or did i miss that i didn't know what i was saying was that there were 40 specimens found before 1937 okay so not the peaking men and do we still have those no, I believe what you're thinking of as the pecking man is like the entire set of fossils. Oh, okay. Oh, it's like Legos. Sure. But it's like Legos, but like with people, like a person. So sure. it's like, but okay. <laughs> He's just smiling and nodding. Okay. So that's crazy. Um, you know, should we go on to mine? Let's do it. All right. And mine gets weird. Like, if you think that's weird. All right. So, Jake, are you ready for this jelly? weird all right so picture it it's 1932 october we're in the san pedro mountains of wyoming i'm picturing it okay (laughs) this is all things considered with jake and max it's not um two prospectors are searching for gold and their names are cecil main and frank carr they are tracking a vein of gold and they blast open into the side of a mountain And once the smoke and dust dissipate, they realize they've come upon a cave or like a shaft. So naturally, they go inside this small chamber, which is reportedly four feet tall by four feet wide and 15 feet deep. And at the I wrote four feet tall by four feet tall. So I needed to kind of stop that. All right. This is raw audio, people. Um. So, and at the end of this, the shaft is, uh, in this cave, there's an alcove and sitting there in the alcove, what do you think they find? What do they find, Max? (laughs) They find a mummified, (laughs) can't with you, a mummified figure of a tiny man, six inches high and in a sitting position. And in the photos I've seen of this, this thing this man it looks kind of like a crisscross like a meditative position i have an important question yes was it peter dinklage okay we can't we have to edit that out um that's it was not peter dinklage um but interestingly enough that does somewhat come into play later on in this um also, don't do Peter like that. He's like one of my favorites. But anyways, what? I was just saying because he's such an amazing actor, he he would have portrayed that role very well. Just like a like a corpse. I feel like you took my voice, my words, and twisted them <laughs> into something cruel and mean spirited. So, anyways, they find this this small man, uh, mummy. It has a flattened skull and brown skin with wisps of gray hair coming from the back of the head. Um, Cecil took the mummy out of the cave and word eventually got out that it was a and it was this huge media frenzy. So let's pause here because now it's creepy about this, this whole thing. I thought when you said you were going to pause, you were going to start an ad. And I was like, oh, my goodness. Well, let me tell you about. No, I can't actually do about that. Squarespace <laughs> or Blue Apron or Casper. I love Squarespace. <laughs> well, um, actually, I will have an ad probably at the start of this episode, but it will be for the podcast uh, hosting platform. Um, yeah, we're not affiliated with any of those companies yet. But hey, if you if you hear us, you know, hit me up. I, I'm really good at peddling your wares. Um, so anyways, what's creepy about this discovery, this this figure, this man, this whatever, um, is that 
the Shoshone people, who are the American Plains Indians who occupy that area, have stories or folklore about two-foot-tall creatures that this tribe refers to as the little people, or, and I'm probably going to butcher this, the Nimeragar. And there are actually stories of little people or hidden folk, not just throughout the many, many tribes and kingdoms, kingdoms, yeah, we'll go with that, of um, Native America, but around the world as well. And pretty much every culture has them. Um, And Jake, you can sort of jump into that later because I know that this is something we've talked about outside of this recording on how we have those theories well we'll get into those later um but so according to shoshone tales the numeragar were not very friendly you wouldn't want to come across them they were uncivilized and would shoot poison arrows from their bows their name roughly translates to the people eaters and they were said to kill and consume their own kind that just seems really excessive it yes it does which is probably i'm all for a bit of cannibalism but that just seems like a lot you anthropologists and your hobbies um so a lot of this next part kind of just comes from wikipedia sorry about it but um what's interesting is that there is a missionary named zeisberger in 1778 who uh also kind of pointed to the possibility that these numeragar or other people like little people or diminutive race um existed in north america uh near cochocton ohio uh, he's apparently this missionary discovered a burial ground of remains of what he called a pygmy race or what I think would become known as a pygmy race. I'm not sure if that phrase was coined yet, but they were about three feet in height and he went to describe, Oh no, he does describe. Yeah. Great research, Max. Uh, he does go on to describe them as a pygmy race. And he, um, says you know he theorizes that they might have been sun worshipers that the way they were buried kind of indicates some irreverence of the sun and the way like the 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 direction of the bodies was put whatever unfortunately these burial grounds are no longer existence as a result of extensive farming and modern inhabitation of the land which is disappointing because that could really change a lot about you know a placement of people and evolution and you know a lot of stuff so he he believed that the people because i guess he was kind of he in addition to being a missionary he was also sort of a an anthropologist of a sort he believed that these primitive people understood the use of stone axes of pottery uh just you know uh, an evolved stone age or was it paleolithic or neolithic I was never very good at archaeology. Okay, Indy. All right. So anyways, they were an advanced, but like they were advanced. So uh, anyways, it was believed by Mann and Carr, the the two gentlemen who discovered this um, small uh, mummy, that the remains they discovered was in fact one of these uh, Numeriagar. And uh, just as a disclaimer, this is not a little person in the sense of a person who happens to have a genetic condition that makes their features smaller, um, such as, as Jake pointed out, um, the very great Peter Dinklage, who I am a huge fan of. Um, so it's not like, you know, a little person. Um, this is more like some, they believed it was more like a folkloric entity. But um and, you know, we have to sort of make a distinction 
because I will get into this later, there are pygmy people. They are not, I believe they're not classified as little person in like a genetic or biological sense. That's more of an an anthropological sense. We'll get into that later. Um, It's just kind of important to make those distinctions. But um, anyways, when it was discovered, many people in the area thought that this mummy was a hoax, but Cecil didn't really care one way or the other because he was a prospector and he just wanted to make money off of it. So he sold it to a, I'm not sure if I'm pronouncing this right, a Mititsi Wyoming insurance salesman named Homer Sherrill, who purchased it for $25 in 1934, so more than $25 now. Uh, you can convert that on your own. Uh, it Basically, this thing became a sideshow attraction where people could pay $0.25 cents to look at it, and that's where it remained for several years until Homer gave it to a used car salesman named Ivan Goodman. Uh, Goodman, it looks like, was the first person who actually decided that there was some anthropological or archaeological significance to the discovery, but being in the industry of selling cheap cars to people, he knew that he was probably in over his head. Um, however, he also, of course, wanted money, and he thought he maybe he could stand to gain something financially if he proved that the mummy was a distant relative of a pygmy. Which, Jake, I actually thought until I did this, the pygmy were a specific tribe of people, but it turns out there's actually series of ethnic groups from a wide variety of unrelated cultures, and I really invite you to just jump in and, like, wrest the mic from my hands about this, um, but, um... I guess the commonality between these people is that they are, for some reasons that I am sure you can answer, Jake, they're usually short-statured, on average less than 150 centimeters. Uh, I think some theories show that it has something to do with adapting to low light in rainforested areas, and this is where I'm going to hand the microphone to you. Well, I know that there's been some, there was a species, there's a homo, a different type of homo species that uh, basically became so small of stature they took on a different species from humans, although they didn't branch off from us, they branched off from a different lineage before. But they became what I would assume we would see today as a pygmy. Um, but I would say that there's also a theory that, um, I believe it's true that there occasionally can be found a lot of, or not a lot of, but on some island areas or places very kind of isolated from things, you get uh, things start to grow smaller because being smaller means you consume less resources and you expend less resources. So it could be an issue uh, type of thing of that as well. So it might just be that pygmies um, originate because those tribes of humans adapted to needing to be smaller because it just costs less energy to be small. Okay, that makes a lot of sense. Now, when you mentioned similar discoveries are you talking about i believe it's called homo florensis i believe that is uh the one yes and that actually people believe that uh homo florensis is the um one of the examples of this kind of cultural memory of like little people or hidden folk where you get the idea of like elves and fairies from um so it all kind of ties in together doesn't it yeah i'd say so it's uh it definitely i can definitely see the connection there all right. So anyways, back to the story. Um, just kind of adjust the microphone here. Uh, it's everything. It's kind of an anything goes kind of episode here. Um, so he brought uh, Goodman brings our little mummy friend to Dr. Paul Martin of the Chicago Museum of Natural History. And there in 1950, a significant X-ray and photographic analysis of the mummy was undergone. 
according to the internet and or this episode of Unsolved Mysteries, where I first heard about this tale, the x-rays revealed that the remains were of a species between a mature infant or an undersized human being about 17 inches tall. Uh, Dr. Martin believed that it suffered from, oh, I'm going to butcher this, uh, anencephaly, which this is a condition in which infants are born without a brain and lack a complete skull, which sounds horrifying. As a result, the mummified humanoid may have taken on the physical appearance of an adult. Uh, DNA testing showed it to be a Native American, and radiocarbon dated it to about 1700. Uh, other armchair theorists say that the malformed skull could have been the result of a blow to the head. These experts believe that the mummy has other physical characteristics of an adult, including a full set of teeth. So after it was returned to Goodman with somewhat inconclusive results, Goodman found a buyer from a New York businessman named Leonard Wadler in 1975. And uh, sorry about the sirens. We live in New York. And at this point, it drops off the face of the earth, this mummy, because nobody has seen it since. So uh, my take is Wadler lost it. Uh, he lost the mummy, and there's not a lot out there explaining how or why this happened. But there is a reward of $10,000 to the person who finds it. The reward was put up by the Chicago Star Tribune in the hopes of seeking, quote, unquote, seeking to prove evolution wrong some kind of aftermath on the unsolved mysteries wiki because there is a unsolved mysteries wiki of course uh does kind of go into the fact that dr wadler ended up in florida he died in the 1980s no one really knows what happened to the mummy but um after this episode of unsolved mysteries aired it was just there another mummy that was also originated from the san pedro mountains was discovered um, an analysis of this mummy shows that it was of an infant dating back several thousand years that had suffered also from anencephaly, which this said is an enlarged brain and the other thing said a missing brain. So sorry about the poor research on that one. Uh, it's one or the other. It's not good. Choose one. Um, <laughs> while the original remains have never been found from this, uh, the original um, mummy friend it is believed that these bo mummies both share the same characteristics so yeah i'm gonna go with it was probably just uh unfortunately an infant that um had this condition but my personal theory is due to the fact that it seemed a pretty big grave for one body it could be that the child was abandoned to die in the wilderness and it was actually come up it was come upon by some shoshone or whoever was in that area at the time um, and it was assumed to be the body of a nimeragar so the shoshone to my knowledge did not worship the nimeragar in any size shape or form on the contrary it sounds like they wanted to have nothing to do with them but they may have tried to bury the creature in this kind of um, respectful place sort of as an appeasement or maybe even like a warning, like a do not mess with us. Or it's an alien or alien-human hybrid. And uh, Jake, should I go into the weird part of this story? I like that one. I like the uh, alien-human hybrid. Okay. I'm sure you do. Um, so it turns out <laughs> there uh, there's kind of a history of finding weird mummies or like skeletal remains all across the world um and i'm just going to go into a couple of these uh there's atta uh which is the atacama skeleton 
It was found in 2003 in a deserted Chilean town in the Atacama Desert. And in this um, this part of the world, there used to be a lot of nitrate mining facilities um, that were abandoned. Uh, Thinking Sideways actually has a whole episode on the Atacama skeleton, so that's a plug. Definitely listen to it. One of my favorite podcasts. Um, so I'm not going to go in depth because I really think people should just listen to that episode. But basically, the skeleton was discovered by a scavenger, kind of like Ray and Jakku from the 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 force awakens um but with alien well well aliens both in this and that um it was discovered in an abandoned churchyard uh in a graveyard in a white pouch it looked weird so it eventually ended up being studied it's not lost yet, but it's 6 inches tall and looks kind of like what you would imagine when you think of a traditional gray alien it's got that elongated head and the beady insect eyes uh, there's been dating done on it and it's, you know, it's hard to date something like that because it's just so ugly looking. How could you ever want to? But Jake is not laughing at that joke. It's hard to carbon date something like that because a lot of like uh, material is missing or it's like decayed. Um, conclu- it's conclusive that it's probably not an alien, but, you know, who knows for sure. Um, and I guess... Ripley of Ripley's Believe or Not founded a similar kind of thing in the same area. So I guess that's just a thing that happens here. And also, I guess there's a lot of like UFO activity in that area, which lends some kind of belief that this might be something weird. Um, A lot of people do think it's extraterrestrial in origin. I personally believe it's just uh, maybe it was an aborted fetus. Um, But there's characteristics that kind of disprove that. I don't know. It's a mystery. Um, there is also the uh, Alyoshenko witch. Oh, wait. No, it's not. I just hit how there's also the Alyoshenko witch, comma. Okay, so it's not called the Alyoshenko witch. Sorry about that. Um, it's called the Alyoshenko, which, uh, believe it or not, is an even weirder story. Uh, perhaps the apex of weird in this already weird tale. And the Alyoshenko... What, or the Kaishtam dwarf is believed by many to be a prematurely born female baby with many deformities found in the village of Kalinovi near Kaishtam uh, in Russia. In, it was discovered in May 1996. Uh, the remains of this, however, are lost. There are photos and videos of the corpse. Uh, it's lent the the mystery itself is kind of weird and dubious, but it was basically this fetus or thing that was found by an elderly woman it was a big deal it was studied it looks weird it looks alien as does everything else in this episode um what was weird is that after she was discovered this the woman tamra prasverina who discovered it was uh admitted to a psych ward um for treatment and the uh, police or the local military confiscated the evidence, at which point it vanishes. And then most mysteriously of all, in 1999, uh, the woman, um, Tamra, was killed in a car accident in an attempt to escape from the hospital. Um, it's a weird story. Uh, this is not a supernatural podcast as much as we kind of dip our toes into that. So I'm not going to really go into that too much. It's definitely weird. Um, 
again it's conclusive that it's probably human um people think it actually might be a premature baby that was uh, affected from i guess there was a nuclear accident in kaishtam there was a reactor there that was building weapons grade plutonium and uh there was an accident where the area became radiated Radiated? Irradiated. Irradiated, thank you. Um, and this could have been like a birth defect from that. So, um, but it's pretty weird that that was in 1957, however, so there's a little bit of gap, but who knows? Uh, yep, just weird. Uh, there's also, there's something called the Star Child Skull, which Jake is shaking his head. He's like, stop it. Um, which was discovered uh, in El Paso in 1999. People also think it might be a alien or alien-human hybrid. It's unlikely. Again, it's probably just a deformed hum- skull of a human. And um, yeah, that's that's pretty much my my story, Jake, on uh, weird mummies. Uh, do you have any theories? <laughs> well, always aliens. You, always, you think it's, it's aliens? It's always aliens. Um, but no, I think honestly it... Um, it's really what you said earlier, where it, it with the Peking man, Peking man, Peking man, Peking. Um, it's like you said with the Peking man, the fact that it it might just be that some somebody got shot and somehow got lost, and I think that's honestly the answer for most like stuff like your alien stuff is a bit different because someone could have taken it because they thought it was cool and all that, but I think especially for like just generally anything that's famous it's lost i feel like the default answer is probably someone knew where it was and they just happened to die at the wrong time and never gave that information to anybody so i'm sure there's just a bunch of treasure sitting in i i I would bet a large amount of money that there is just some there is just some trailer or not trailer um there's just some there's just some crappy like storage unit that has like the most expensive thing in the entire world in it because someone and it's just gonna sit there until someone like throws it out have you actually listened to any other episode of this podcast because that's usually the kind of conclusion that i draw i don't recall (laughs) okay um all right jake so do you have i mean that's really it this is kind of just like a special bonus episode um do you have anything you want to plug no i'm good (laughs) okay um all right you can rate relic on the itunes rate subscribe do that whole thing we've got twitter lost treasure pod tweet tweet stuff at me it's fun um but yeah that's that's people tweet at you people do tweet at me oh that's so cool yeah do you know who tweeted me the other day not sorry she didn't tweet me she liked to reply which is uh georgia hardstark of my favorite murder i was really excited about that i know i know we're getting famous but not really anyways yeah so this is like a special episode where we just kind of do a round table it was very off the cuff something new most of our episodes are narrative so definitely check those out if you thought that this was you know maybe different than what you expected that's cool but um, yeah, we'll we I will. Feel be... like someone's being passive aggressive. Am I? Am I, Jake? Am I? Yes. Okay. Um. All right. So uh, yeah. Thank you for listening, and uh, the adventure continues. Bye, guys.